0: As we continue this morning in our series called The Hall of Faith we are looking technically at Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11 of the Bible God gives us illustrations and examples of various different Old Testament individuals that were used by God or had an extraordinary experience with God but they themselves were simply ordinary people. Saying it this way, they were ordinary people used in extraordinary ways by God, and it was their faith that allowed God to do so. And as we've been working through this series together, we've imagined ourselves in a tour group heading either to Cooperstown or Canton or Cleveland to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Standing there at the entrance we began looking up at the colosseum and looking above the entranceway with these words pronouncedly and carved upon the doorway. And it states that without faith it is impossible. Dot, dot, dot. Provoking us to consider what is impossible apart from faith. And of course that's taken from Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him. That is God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe: number one, that He exists, and that number two, He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. So we are now confronted, and we are uh, we're provoked to consider the reality that there is something that is impossible apart from faith. And now we understand that is to please God. As we moved into the building. We were confronted with a wall, and on that wall was the benchmark in which all of the inductees to the Hall of faith were, um, were sized by. And that wall stated for us very clearly the definition of faith, which we looked at last week. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old, and that considering the people of the Old Testament, Uh, received their commendation by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of god so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible and we indicated that faith allows us to see the unseen as a reality and i would encourage you to go back and to listen to that entire message because faith opens a door, it is an additional sense that allows us to see that which is invisible and see and interact with it as it is part of the reality in which we live. Now, we stated that this reality is not something that we have conjured up and that we hope for alone, but it is a reality that all must acknowledge, Many people are convinced that the physical world in which we live in is the sole reality that surrounds us. But reading the Bible, it tells us a completely different story. That there's a world that surrounds us in the physical world that created the physical world. And God is at the cornerstone of that invisible environment. And we who are believers in God see that just as much as a reality as the physical reality in which I currently occupy and walk in every single day. Now those who even do not believe in that reality will one day be subjected to that reality when every knee confess or bows and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Just because we don't want to believe in something doesn't mean that that isn't real. Or it isn't something that we should believe in. It It doesn't negate it just because we simply reject it. So faith allows me to interact with the unseen in a tangible, practical way. But as we are now making our way through the building and we are beginning to enter into the exposition hall and begin to see the different inductees that God has placed there within the hall of faith, We are confronted with the context in which all of us today are confronted by. And why it was so significant in the the fact of the light of which each of these individuals had accomplished. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish people who had just become Christians. As you remember, the story of the Old Testament is the story of the nation of Israel from its conception to its birth, to its growth, to its rebellion, etc. And then as you work through the Old Testament, you come to the fact that after a 400-year period of silence, one comes on the earth named John the Baptist proclaiming the coming of the one in whom Israel has waited for their entire existence, the Messiah. That is Jesus Christ. And so the first people that were... Um, given the opportunity to believe and to receive uh, Jesus Christ were those of Jewish people of Jewish descent who for thousands of years lived under the uh, covenant of Moses and lived as Jewish people and interacted with God through that manner of sacrificing animals remembering the Passover etc. But now Jesus had come saying and stating that he was the fulfillment of everything that was expected up until that point. And now he tells everyone, believe in him, and you shall receive eternal life. And in Acts chapter 2, we find that in Jerusalem, thousands started coming to this faith in Jesus Christ. And they were of Jewish descent. And this is before Paul took it out into the Gentile world and so forth. And at first it was readily accepted by the Jewish community and it wasn't uh, frowned upon and it was something that people saw and had favor with. Acts chapter 2 tells us that. But after a period of time, this new rise of Christianity became a threat to those in power in Judaism. Judaism. And they then began to turn their attention in in trying to dismantle and destroy the momentum and the movement of this new thing called Christianity. And each and every one of the Jewish people that believed in Jesus were then beginning to become uh, targets of great and severe persecution. And as a result, many of those Jewish people started questioning the validity of their newfound faith. Things were starting to get very difficult and even their uh, quality of life was being challenged by their new faith in Jesus Christ for it wasn't uncommon for the Jewish leaders to, uh, to take possession of their wealth and possessions as a form of persecution, to take them out of places of prominence and power and to limit their influence upon the society as much as they possibly could. Sounds like a very similar story that's happening today. But as a result, these persecuted Jewish Christians were starting to question, should they continue moving forward in this new faith, this Christianity, being a follower of Jesus Christ? we, like them, can allow our circumstances to often lead us into positions of doubt concerning our faith in God. When things are going well, we often um, don't consider turning from or walking away from God. We feel that since things are going well, why disturb things? I'll just keep moving forward and so forth. And I don't want to upset the apple cart Sometimes, though, I've discovered that when things are going well for people, they often fall into the delusionment that they no longer need God in any way, shape, or form, and that's a sad tragedy. But when things get difficult for individuals, that is when people start questioning their faith in God. Uh, if, If God was really there and God really cared, would he allow me to go through such difficulties through this life would he allow my possessions to be repossessed would they would he allow people to uh, persecute me in the way that they are uh, wouldn't it be easier just to conform to the ideology of the time and therefore spare myself any of the further persecution going further what's the point in going on any longer i i don't need this i mean life is too short it's, It's hard enough as it is, why do I need to bring any extra criticism upon my life solely because I'm a follower in Jesus Christ? Well the reality of it is this, it's because Christ is not simply concerned about our temporal comfort as much as He is concerned about our eternal glory. And he is asking us to have an eternal perspective rather than a temporal one. We obviously have seen how Jesus was treated. Here's a man who loved people perfectly, and he was still hated. Uh, He treated people with dignity, and he was still hated. Uh, He gave the opportunity for forgiveness and acceptance, and he was still hated by people especially by those who were in power and by those who were the leaders of the religious system at that time. So if Jesus was treated in such a way, how can we expect anything really better? Let's be honest. And in fact, I think I read somewhere that someone said, well, they've hated me and they'll hate you also. He's setting the standard. He's setting the bar. So we shouldn't be surprised by the persecution in which we receive as believers in Jesus Christ. And today we receive it not physically, but certainly academically, intellectually. Our society has been convinced and the rise of this neo-atheism that we find in our society gives weight to the evidence of this fact. The fact is this, that many believe That the intellectual pursuit of an individual cannot fully be developed until we release the idea that there is a God. Really, some of the most brilliant people in the world were followers of God. My faith in God does not inhibit my ability to learn and to excel. And one of my favorite examples in our society today is Dr. Ben Carson. Dr. Ben Carson who recently ran for presidency and now is serving in the cabinet of the current administration, he was a brilliant surgeon who discovered several methods in which to separate Siamese twins and allowing both to live rather than the parents having to make the awful decision of which one shall live and which one shall die. Dr Ben Carson holds 67 doctorates degrees. I'm convinced that he sneezes and gets another doctorate. It is obvious that his faith in Jesus Christ has in no way inhibited his ability to learn and to excel. It is a fallacy. It is a fallacy that if we uh, hold to a, a, a idea and belief in God in Christianity and so forth, that we are inhibited in our intellectualism that's absolute nonsense. In fact, we have the proper perspective of true wisdom and true knowledge beginning with the fear of the Lord. But some, when it, it became very difficult, their lives were on the line, their families were on the line, their wealth was on the line, their possessions were on the line, started to consider turning back and the term here in our text is shrinking back deciding to move away from Christianity because of the pressures that they were experiencing and feeling and it's at this point that the writer of Hebrews reminds them of the catalyst that's going to continue not only pointing them forward but pushing them forward and that is their faith trust God the writer says at this moment continue to allow that faith to point you forward rather than shrinking back. And if you will take that step in faith and continue with the Lord, you will find momentum grow in not only that faith pointing you forward, but also pushing you forward in your relationship with God here in this world. And so the exhortation that we find written on the wall that confronts us with the reality and poses to us a question in verse 39 is this therefore do not throw away your confidence that is your faith that is in what you know to be true which has a great reward you know what God has promised you if you will continue with him heaven, the rewards thereof, etc. for you have need of endurance, you need to keep pushing forward so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live underline this by faith. And if he or she shrinks back, God says my soul has no pleasure in him or her. But we are not of those who shrink back. And here's the exhortation and the conclusion that we read as we begin to look within the hall of faith. So we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. It means wasted or brought to nothing. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Think with me just for a moment. The individuals that had power at the time in which they were then able to leverage persecution against this newly founded church, where are they today? Are they even remembered? In fact, the greatest power at that time was the power that the Emperor Caesar held in the world at that moment. The whole world was subjected to his power. The church Later was greatly persecuted by this power. But where is Caesar today? He's a salad. That's all he is. Or, if you want to go one step further, some of the worst pizza around. Little Caesar's. Where is he today? Those Christians, though, who continued on with Christ are now reigning in glory with Christ for all eternity. They continued. They have now reached the pinnacle of existence, and that is to be in the presence of the Lord. And so the writer wants us to consider, will you now shrink back at this moment, or will you push ahead with the faith that is pointing forward? It's a challenge that we are given now before we consider each of the inductees as we go through the hall of faith. If we back up for just a moment, the manner in which the writer of Hebrews describes and to remind his readers of the privileged position in which they hold as Christians, he begins by writing this letter to these Jewish believers and reminding them of the superiority of Jesus Christ over everything else. Angels were held in great esteem and honor in the society of the Jewish people. Moses was someone you could not speak against without great grave consequence. Some of the high priests were like celebrities in that society. Some were liked more than others. The sacrifices that were made on behalf of the people seemed at the moment to be sufficient for the manner in which to cleanse an individual temporarily of sin and to allow them to interact with God. And the covenant they had, they had grown very accustomed to, and that is the covenant of the law, the covenant with Moses. And yet the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is better than all of them. Jesus is superior to any angel. Jesus is completely superior to a human that is of Moses, being human and God himself. He's, a, he's more uh, and better than any priest that ever ever lived. And the sacrifice in which he gave on behalf of mankind was a sacrifice of permanency rather than that of temporalcy. And the covenant which he entered into with man allowed us by faith to have all the blessings that are found in heavenly places. And as a result, he says, now will you shrink back? Will you toss in the towel? Will you turn around or will you keep going forward? Posing the question to his readers, what is better in the world than Jesus Christ? Who is able to provide for you what Christ is able to provide for you? And he reminds them of the days in which they were uh, enthralled with their newfound relationship with God through Jesus Christ, verse 32. He says, "But recall the former days. when after you were enlightened, you brought to that place and you were shown, and now you see the reality of who Jesus is, and you endured a hard struggling, with suffering, that moment that you first got saved. I will never forget the moment that I first got saved as a Christian. I couldn't believe it. For the first time in my life, I had a clear conscience. I felt that I was clean for the very first time. I felt like I had purpose for the very first time. I knew now love for the very first time. I understood grace for the very first time. And I certainly appreciated the mercy that was shown to me through God. I understood that I was now entering a brand new life and all the old things were uh, of the past and now all things were brand new and I had a new fresh start. And he says, remember this time in which you first got saved. It's an important memory to keep in the back of your mind. The writer of Revelation said when individuals lost their love for God, their first love, he also too reminds them to go back to the beginning remember that moment that you came and experienced the grace of God for the very first time. But he goes on, he says, sometimes, uh," I'm sorry, verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partnered with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Not only did you stand with those individuals who were being persecuted, you were willing to also identify yourself as a Christian. You were willing to allow them to take the possessions in which you had as a form of persecution, as he states here, plundering your property. You did all of this because you knew for yourself that you had something better coming. It was a possession that could never be taken and it was abiding for all eternity and those are the rewards that they would receive in heaven for their faithfulness in Christ. And they were willing to sacrifice those things that they had here in this world. They were willing to forego the temporal pleasures of these temporal experiences for the everlasting, eternal rewards that would be given to them for their faithfulness in Christ. In verse 35, and therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. This is that promise again. For you have need of endurance. You need to keep pushing on. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Paul wrote, he said in Romans eight eighteen, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To the Corinthians, he wrote this in two Corinthians four seventeen and eighteen. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And this is a choice that I think we as Christians are confronted with and have to make each and every day. Will we simply live for the momentary pleasures of this world? Or when Christ requires, will we forgo those temporal pleasures for the eternal weight of glory that is ours if we do so? Today I think many Christians are struggling with this. They don't understand the value of giving up the pleasures and the conveniences and and those things of the world that appear to make people happy on the outside. We know that the Bible tells us that the wisest person that ever lived was Solomon. And yet Solomon, in all of the wisdom that he had and was given by God, he also was blessed with great wealth and all the prosperity and all the possessions and everything that this world could possibly have to offer. Everything that individual Christians are Are confronted by every single day and are wondering if this is worth pursuing and me uh, departing from my walk and faith with the Lord. And Solomon even though he had all the wisdom and even though he had all the money and so forth he got himself into a lot of problems didn't he? Because he didn't do it the way God would want him to do it. He had a multiplicity of wives, a multiplicity of, of concubines, He had all different kinds of horses and wealth and everything else that went with it. And yet, at the end of his life, when he begins to pen his final letter and the Proverbs that he's written to his son, he sees the vanity in it all. He says, I wish I wasn't distracted by these things. I wish I wouldn't have given up those things that God uh, said were important for these things that were merely temporal. Now, he had all the wisdom... He had more money than anybody on the earth today. He um, had more relationships than anybody in this world today. And he he also had fame and uh, prominence and power, and yet it was all vanity compared to his relationship with God. Now, we can learn from somebody like him or think that we can do it better and look into this world and say, no, I still think that there's something out there that's more important than God. And Solomon would say, well... Yeah, go ahead. I did it. I, I went that route. And I ended up with this conclusion. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. And as a result, we are confronted with that as they were in this text. And we have the temptation to shrink back at times rather than pushing forward. So the writer of Hebrews says to us, don't throw it away. It means to give up too soon. It means to give up when you're almost there and you've almost crossed the finish line. It's like running a marathon, a 26-mile marathon, and quitting at mile 25 and three-quarters. How'd you feel at that point? That's what this word throwaway means. Have you ever given up on something too soon and regretted it? Or you started a project and then you gave up on it because you didn't see the value of it, and then you said, oh, if I only would have gone through it. Many people feel that way about higher education. I started college, I didn't see the reason for it, they say, and then I stopped, but now, looking back at it, oh, I wish I would have continued in higher education. I'll never forget inviting some of the guys, some of them might be here today, to a preseason Bears football game and we went in august you know when you should go to a football game soldier field in winter is not the most uh, enjoyable experience especially with the way the bears have been playing lately but we went to this game and they were losing going into the fourth quarter and i you know i've been a bears fan just like a cubs fan i know please pray for me and I just said to him, I said, you know, let's beat the traffic. Let's just get out of here. My father-in-law was with, and uh, I said, let's just go, you know. We got a long walk back to the car. This is done for. This is absolutely over with. And as we got up and we started walking out and we left the game, and as we were walking away, we just started hearing all of this cheering. And the Bears had one of the greatest comebacks in their NFL history. And my father-in-law, the whole way home, just looked at me and said, I will never go to a football game again with you. (laughs) I left too soon. That's what this throwing away means. Don't give up at this point. Don't leave too soon. You know that this confidence, this faith that you have will lead you to great reward, as the scripture says. And it is the only one who continues to proceed by faith that will obtain such rewards. For you have need of endurance, the scripture says. You need to persevere. You need to press through. Even when it gets tough, you need to keep pushing through forward in faith. So that when you have done the will of God, what is the will of God that He would have you to do? Here it is referring to the loyalty to Jesus Christ, remaining in relationship with Him. As First John three twenty three states, and this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of uh, God, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. This is what God would have you to do. This is what he wants you to keep persevering in, even though difficulties abound within. Walking with him, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And you will receive the promise that is eternal life and the reward that is given in conjunction with that but the question then arises how long shall we have to endure verse 37 for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay now you may say well wait a minute now it's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked this earth and we're still waiting for his coming I am confident now that his coming is 2,000 years closer than it ever has been before. That being said, when the writer quotes this verse and says, yet it is still just a little while, he is looking at the span of life in this world compared to that of eternity. So the 70, 80 years, maybe 90 years that we are given here in this world, on this earth, in this life, is nothing compared to the eternity that we have with God. And for the writer, he's saying, why in the world would you ever give up those things that you can have for all eternity, For things that are passing so quickly in the 70, 80, 90 years that you have on this world. It's a question that we are all confronted by. And how shall we endure? Well, by faith. Verse 38. But my righteous one, the one who is right with me, shall live by faith. Not only are we born again by faith in our faith in Jesus Christ, But we also live day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, and walk with the Lord by faith. And please know that the one who lives by faith is the one who will receive the reward. But if he shrinks back, if he throws it all away, if he turns around and goes the other way, God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then we are confronted with the question that we are posed before entering in and to consider each of the inductees into the hall of faith. When we talk about drawing back or shrinking back from Christ and that which displeases God, we are talking about one who professes to be a Christian but then draws back into sin. We are talking about one who has known the truth and then draws back into sin. One who plays and walks as a hypocrite. Now, no one is perfect, but one who says adamantly that they are one thing, one who says adamantly that they believe in something and they live in complete contrary fashion to that declaration, that's the hypocrite. And one who has a form of religion, but draws back from the sacrificial blood of his son. There is no other way to heaven other than through Jesus Christ. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, shall, uh, no one can <laughs> come to the Father except through me. Excuse me. And as a result, we are now confronted with this reality that we now find in verse 39. The writer is giving us the benefit of the doubt. He's saying, but we are not of those who shrink back. You and I are not of those. We will persevere. We will push on. We will move forward by faith. And those who shrink back are destroyed. That's a difficult word in the Greek to uh, interpret. Destroy, uh, wasted is a better word. It's one who has wasted their life. One who has shrunk back in their pursuit of Jesus Christ has wasted their life. That's what he is saying here. But for those who have faith and preserve their souls it is us who will experience the rewards of eternity. Now I am not advocating a works relationship with God. It is by grace through faith that one is saved. There is no works in which we can do to earn or to merit our salvation. That is completely a finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection through the gospel. However, though, there are many, the Bible indicates, who believes that they are right with God who believe that eternity in heaven await for them. They have ascended to an academic or a realization or a certain level of knowledge concerning Jesus Christ, but they've never come to that saving faith that has transformed their lives. And as a result, they walk around in a disillusionment. And and that is what the individual is addressing here. These individuals who would shrink back, who would turn away, are demonstrating that they were never truly saved to begin with. The Bible is replete with indications of that fact. Let me ask you a very personal question this morning. Do you know for sure that if something were to happen to you today, God forbid, that eternity would be waiting for you? And if you say, yes, I'm confident of that, I ask them the question, why are you confident of that? And if you say to yourself anything but my faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, you are deceiving yourself. If you feel like, well, I'm a good person. Well, I haven't done nearly the wrong that the person sitting next to me has done. That should get you wondering and questioning. Take a look next to you. Who are they? What have they done? And as a result you are simply fooling yourself to think that your good deeds, your righteousness if you will, will allow you entrance into heaven. It's only through perfection and that perfection can only be a gift of God. When I, when an individual comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, they realize that sin has separated them from God the Father. They realize that that gap, that cavern, that gulf between God and man is something that can never be bridged from my side. I I can't do anything to bridge that gap. God knew that. I was in a hopeless situation. I was in a desperate situation. I was in a situation that could only lead me to destruction and despair. But what I couldn't do, God did for me through the person of Jesus Christ. For God from his point extended a bridge across that gulf with the cross and allowed individuals to once again return to him not in their own endeavors or their own righteousness or their own good works or of their own doing but that of which God has done for them. And we just simply need to believe by faith that Jesus Christ has done that for us We need to repent of our sins, that means to turn from them and no longer desire to go back to them. And we need to walk across that bridge. And we need to then have fellowship with God each and every day, growing as we do. Each step we're taking across that gulf from the side of sin to the side of sanctification. Each step that we take, we are being changed and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what the writer is trying to get to us today that it's through Christ and Christ alone, no other bridge is formed. We don't have the option like New Yorkers do, of the Brooklyn and so forth, the Washington and so forth. There's one, and that is Christ. And there is no other way by which a person can be saved. And that's it. Now we are going to be challenged as we walk across that bridge. The world is going to tell us, turn back, you're going the wrong way. Because the bridge that they are on is very wide and it's incredibly populated and it's uh, incredibly popular. And they're going to say, turn around, what's the point? You know, the bridge around, it's so rocky and it's stumbly and oh, come on, it's much easier if you go this way, but theirs is going in the opposite direction. And the end result from them is destruction. And this isn't my words, these are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ but it is faith. It is faith that takes us to put our foot on that bridge. Some know that that bridge exists through Christ and they feel like that's enough. I I know that bridge is there for me. That's sufficient that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Some believe, and they say, well, I believe that that bridge exists, which would be a a, a step further. I believe that it's there, and I believe that it is capable of saving me. But then there's faith. Faith takes you from simply knowing, simply believing, to that point where you actually step onto the bridge. You believe it's there, and you believe that it's capable of, of holding you, keeping you, and providing for you the methodology to get to where you want to go. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. But we have to be real with ourselves. We want to believe that we are all good people, all getting to heaven. And I'm sure you are a good person compared to maybe, like I said, the person sitting next to you. But compared to Jesus Christ, we all fall far from perfection and perfection is the standard by which one enters into the kingdom of heaven and jesus says if you will believe in me if you will receive me if you will repent of your sin and follow after me you will have eternal life you will have eternal life father we come before you this morning you know even